while uh, all of all of the world that's disclosed within Gnostic cosmological narratives, as far as we can tell, happens within the one. Um, even in the benighted realm in which we're present, uh, this is not not the one. We are not not in the Pleroma. We are not detached from the one. It's just obscured by the hilarious Keystone Cops uh, world of the Demiurge. You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. Introduction. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm Tim Mansfield. I'm apparently a bishop in this church for my sins, um, or your sins, the sins of everyone accumulated. Um, the title of my talk is Centering Prayer for Gnostics. Uh, what I gather is that what we're talking about is um, okay, so there's a, there's a ton of introductory material, some of it by me um, online, about uh, how to practice centering prayer. Um, so, so perhaps there's a couple of questions uh, around that. One is, how does one make sense of it within the, uh, the poetics of Gnosticism, one might say? Um, and why might it be a sensible thing for Gnostics to consider? Okay, so for the benefit of um, anybody watching and the couple of people in the room that aren't, I, you haven't practiced centering prayer, but do you know what it is? Have you heard instructions for it before? Not so much. Okay, so just, yeah. yes, no. Do it. Tell us about it. Super quick. Okay, so the, uh, the, 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 the standard introduction to Centering Prayer is a one-day workshop. Um, here with my six-minute introduction to Centering Prayer. Okay. Okay. The basics of Centering Prayer is it's a form of meditation grounded in Western Christian tradition um, that rests on... Uh, a simple point of faith, and that is that, at least in, in, in Catholic terms, the Holy Spirit is always present in the human soul and working actively for your liberation. Um, our insistence on uh, engaging with and clinging to our, our incessant thought processes um, messes with what the Holy Spirit is trying to get up to. So, Centering Prayer is, is based in that, that faithful belief um, and making a commitment to the ongoing practice of letting the Holy Spirit get about her business. So, it's real simple. You make a commitment that whenever you notice yourself attaching to, clinging to, or getting caught up in a thought, you let the thought go. Now, that's pretty common to most styles of meditation, but in mindfulness-based stress reduction, basic mindfulness practice, most kinds of breath meditation, most kinds of concentrated meditation, you would let the thought go and then return your attention to an object of concentration. Often the breath, sometimes a part of the body, candle meditation, it might be a candle, mantra meditation, it might be a mantra. In Centering Prayer, you don't do anything in particular with your attention. All you're doing is noticing that your attention is caught up in a thought, and the moment you notice that it's caught, you make the commitment that you're going to let the thought go. At some point later, you again notice you're caught up in a thought, and the moment you do, you let the thought go. Now that sounds real simple. Um, it, it turns out to be harder than you think. Um, it turns out to be quite difficult to notice. It turns out to be quite difficult to let go. 
and it turns out to be quite difficult not to do something quite determinedly with your attention once you've let go. Mm -hmm. And all three of those, those parts are actually quite important. So um, normally I do like a one day intro to centering prayer and then normally there's a six week follow up group so that you can make all the normal mistakes that everybody makes when they get started with the practice. Um, I, I joke that uh, teaching centering prayer is largely about painstakingly explaining to people how their, their best and most earnest attempts at doing the prayer have again failed and you didn't listen to that very first thing I told you in the first five minutes. Everybody does. I did exactly the same thing. It's perfectly normal. It actually turns out that it's really difficult and it just, it's like you've just got to keep kind of getting the person to kind of stand You just need five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That is pretty much it. Well, the sacred word. What's the that? sacred word. Okay. So the, the, the sacred word is a, is a, is a traditional thing in, in the Sering Prayer movement. Um, so you, that, that commitment, the, the moment you notice that you're, you're caught up in thinking, um, you're going to let it go. You embody that intention with a single word, ideally a very short word, one or two syllables, no longer than that. It shouldn't be a phrase, it shouldn't be a psalm, you know, <laughs> it shouldn't be a prayer, it should ideally be a very short single word. Uh, the recommendation is that you choose a word without a great deal of emotional resonance for you. Yeah. So if you have uh, had an appalling relationship with your father throughout your life, do not choose the word father. Um, if you uh, particularly love chocolate, do not choose the word chocolate. I propose to you that ice cream is a terrible sacred word, but other than that, it really doesn't matter. Um, a lot of people choose words like love or open or God or something. That's fine. You can choose shoe if you like. The word isn't sacred by nature of its being a sacred word. It's made sacred by your ongoing use of it to embody your sacred commitment to the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm, what I'm giving you is the, the kind of the, the fairly standard down the line fairly Catholic-y sounding introduction to Centering Prayer, okay? So I'll just do this because it's the easy way to teach it and then, I'll, then we'll sort of mess with it a little bit from a Gnostic point of view, if that's all right. So you pick a word. So here's how it goes. You sit down. <laughs> Sitting down is generally good. Laying down can work if you're experienced at doing Savasana or something and you can lay down without falling asleep. Awesome, well done you. Most people can't. They normally nod off very quickly if they lay down flat on their back. But if you've got back problems and that's the only way you can meditate, the best meditation posture is the meditation posture you can sustain, so learn how to do that. Less Stop time. banging on the table. Yeah. <laughs> um, take up whatever posture it is uh, that, that you take up. Uh, settle your body, and then um, you may repeat your sacred word several times to begin, um, and then let it drop out. And then at some point after that, you'll notice that you're the thought you're thinking about something so the moment you notice you're thinking about something silently repeat your sacred word and let the thought go don't resist it don't try to not think don't try to empty your mind don't try to clarify anything and do not try to anchor your attention on anything else just if you notice you're caught in a thought let the thought go i feel like i've said that 15 times and that's probably not quite enough to get the point home but anyway that's centering prayer you typically set a timer for 20 minutes. When the 20 minutes is up, it goes ding and you stop. So I guess I'd like to cover a couple of things today. Like why on earth does this make sense for an Gnostic? Um, what does it mean? How might we rephrase it from sort of standard Catholic language into Gnostic and more Gnostic language? And if there's time, I'd quite like to kind of make a couple of recommendations for people that are practiced or experienced with the prayer to, uh, to kind of help with practice because we all struggle with being consistent and regular and feeling like we're doing enough and so on. So I, I wouldn't mind making a couple of comments about that. 
Um, okay, so from a fairly standard kind of Najamati, let's let's stick to a kind of Sethian perspective. Um, Father Tony drew uh, a rather beautiful diagram of the whole of the Pleroma, including the benighted realm in which we allegedly find ourselves according to Sethian tradition. Um, he pointed out as part of his talk that while uh, all, of, all of the world that's disclosed within Gnostic cosmological narratives, as far as we can tell, happens within the one, um, even in the benighted realm in which we're present, uh, this is not not the one. We are not not in the Pleroma. We are not detached from the one. It's just obscured by the hilarious Keystone Cops uh, world of the Demiurge. Um, even if it were, we're sort of doubly reassured in the, in the action that happens in the secret book of John where Barbalo sends uh, secret uh, emissaries to convince the Demiurge to blow her spirit, ultimately, into Adam so that even for all the, the, the messiness of the human psyche that's, that, that we're told we have from Gnostic scripture, we also have, right in the core of our being, the, the very breath of God's own being, God's own wisdom, right in the core of who we are. So it's always present in us. So really, when we talk about, when, a, when someone from the Catholic tradition talks about the Holy Spirit, for a Gnostic, you really ought to, you ought to hear it with that ear. It's the breath of Barbalo breathed into every human being's figurative nostrils. That's, that's present there in the very heart of you. Um, and it is seeking your, it is endlessly, covertly seeking your illumination and awakening in every moment. Um, what Secret John also tells us is that we have a troubled soul. <laughs> we have this hilarious uh, party fun fest of uh, warring passions that are... Um, crafted deviously for us by um, an increasingly large number of uh, iconic entities um, engaged in this futile battle for non-supremacy. Um, our soul is just messed up, according to Gnostic scripture. Um, I find it really surprising, actually, mostly that people want to talk about how anti-materialist uh, Gnostic scripture is, because it, I mean, it kind of is, sort of, as an afterthought, it mentions the material world, but most of what Gnostic scripture talks about is how messed up our soul is. So soul for the ancients is more or less what in the modern era we call our mind. It's the content of our consciousness. It's what's going on in here. It's all your messy emotions and thoughts and feelings. Um, and our insistence on constantly chewing on that shit, engaging with it, don't chew on shit. It's a really bad idea. Most of us learn that when we're very small. Um, stop it. <laughs> That's really the core message of centering prayer. Stop it. <laughs> Put that shit down. Um, and let what's already within you come forth. That's about as Gnostic as things get. Um, what's already present without you doing anything is the one. The one is already here as well as anywhere else. Um, and the presence of epinoia in, in your soul is constantly urging for you to just rest in that presence. So um, there's a lot of spiritual practices uh, that, that are about a lot of, um, you know, that focus a lot on striving and discipline and, um, and a lot of work, and there's a lot of value in all those practices. Centering prayer makes a, makes a different suggestion, and, and that's, that's 
to very carefully and painstakingly strive and struggle to do nothing at all. Um, to, to, uh, which is, it's, it's easy to say do nothing, it actually turns out to be incredibly difficult to set about doing nothing. And so it turns out we actually have to practice it and we only get good at doing it by practicing it every day for a couple of times a day. Um, it's not very complicated, rephrasing, centering, prayer, and agnostic terms. That's that's kind of I don't know. Does, it, does anything that not make sense? Or Tony, do you want to? Is there anything in there you want to kind no. of push out? Or I love all of that. Okay. Yeah, and it kind of makes more sense when you say in agnostic terms than it does in like mainline or right. terms. Yeah, even though they're not. Yeah. yeah, you sort of you sort of actually have to go to quite a lot of Father Thomas Keating. God rest his soul, because he's part, he's gone from us in the last year. Um, we didn't lose him. Uh, we know exactly we know where, where he is. is. He's under a cairn on a mountain in Colorado. Um, Father Thomas Kidding, who di who's died in the last year, uh, went to an ex a lot of work and wrote a lot of books to phrase the practice of centering prayer and ground it thoroughly within Catholic tradition so it was possible for Catholics to practice it and not feel bad and guilty all the time. Right. Right? They also um, talk a lot about how it's not meditation. Exactly. You get in trouble a lot that. Yeah, you don't, you don't talk about it as meditation. Yeah. Um, that's a huge gift because it's a massive thing to kind of open up the power of contemplative prayer to, to people in main, mainline religious denominations. For us, it's real simple. <laughs> we don't need all that work. It's actually really straightforward. Um, we have Evanoia whispering in our ear telling us to do this stuff all the time. So just, just get amongst it, really. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. Right. And we have the entire Sephian cosmos in our brain, right? Right. Yeah. So, like, all the aeons are there, all the archons are there. Uh, there's spinning planets, spinning aeons, spinning around the Father, there's archons dancing around, so the Centering Prayer helps us with that. Correct. Correct! Yes. Was that a... <laughs> that was sort of a question. That was a Jonathan what do you question, wasn't that? it? What do, you think about <laughs> that? what do you think about that? Yeah, no. Um, that's it, and in a sense of... For, for me, um, there's that line from the from Thomas, I think, you, you quoted the other day, what is the sign of your father in you? It is a movement and a yeah. rest. Yeah. Um, and, and most of the time we practice the movement. Yeah. <laughs> it's the bulk of what we're doing. Um, and, and centering prayer and, and most forms of meditation, certainly most forms of, of you know, practicing the Jesus prayer, um, are about acquainting yourself with the other side of the, of the picture. Yeah. It's also a rest. Um, was a thing. It was on the tip of my brain, and I had it for a second, and then I got, and I digressed, and now we're here. Look, it probably doesn't matter. Why should we do centering prayer, perhaps, over other forms of meditation? Well, I don't know that you necessarily should. I know what I was going to say. Hang on. Good. Can I just come back to that so I don't lose it again? I just wanted to briefly touch on why call it prayer? Yes. I guess, because it does look a hell of a lot like meditating, so why, why would you call it prayer? Um, <laughs> there's an awful lot of centering prayer teachers that open with, like I just did, centering prayer is a Christian form of meditation. Um, and that's, that's legit. I think calling it prayer, and I think from, a, from an esoteric or a Gnostic point of view, um, there's a sense in which praying to something is becoming like that something. So what we're doing in Centering Prayer is we're praying to that vision of the perfect invisible Father, or Barbelo, or Sophia, or the One, or the Monad. We're, we're entertaining faithfully that this, this 
perfect transcendent other exists. And in connecting with that other relationally, we hope to become like that other. Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect, I think, as it says in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so that's the sense in which it's prayer. It's not prayer in the sense of kind of, you know, asking the cosmic vending machine for a car or something. Um, it's prayer in the sense of uh, engaging relationally with the divine other, with the intent of, of mimicking in your own heart, in your own soul what, what that other is like, I think. Um, what, uh, Jonathan's question to kind of come back to it without him in the room, which is weird, but here we all are. Um, Actually, I'll wait until he comes back and then we can ask it again. Does anybody else have any other truth? So, uh, I'm curious. I usually have been, well, I have been doing like 30 minutes, but maybe 20 minutes twice a day is better than 30 minutes once a day. I didn't know if you wanted to speak on like time or yeah, where sure. the 20 minute idea comes from. Or... Sure, sure, sure. Uh, the, the 20 minute idea is absolutely like rigorous everywhere. I, I um, like everybody says 20 minutes. <laughs> so, it is, it's, it's, okay once you've kind of established the basic practice to, to do, do a little more. Um, I think practicing twice a day is better than practicing once a day for longer because I think there's something with that that kind of just, you know, grinding the millstone of practice on a, more, a slightly more frequent basis I think does have a, a power to it. Um, I think there's something charming about the 20 minute prescription. Um, I don't know what your experience has been in other meditation communities, but I've noticed among um, Zen practitioners that this is not universal, and, and many people have gone beyond this point, but you do tend to hear a little bit of, yes, well, I've, uh, I've been practicing for two hours every morning for the last three years, and then the other practitioner will say, two hours, that's wonderful, wonderful. Ah, yes, I remember. I remember when I only did two hours. I've been doing four hours twice a day for the last the last five years, and I found it so much deeper. Four hours, that's, that's lovely, that's wonderful. Very good, very good, yes. I remember when I only did four hours. I do eight hours four times a day now. <laughs> it's really, really, you know, so there's this kind of... I'm being snide, but spiritual egotism is a real thing, and people do get really competitive about their practice. 20 minutes is, um, it's almost impossible to find time for when you get started, but once you start to make time in the day to do two 20-minute sessions, it's really difficult to come up with an excuse not to do it. Um, so it's quite humble as an aspiration. Um, and it's really difficult to get particularly egotistical about, right? Like, so so it's, it's reasonably easy to fit in. You can't one-up each other because everybody's, you know, Father Thomas Keating's doing 20 minutes twice a day. Cynthia Bourgeau's doing 20 minutes twice a day. You're doing 20 minutes twice a day. You've met the standard, congratulations, you won already, it's all good. So I guess I'd, I'd say those two things. Um, in my own experience, there was a huge... I experienced a huge shift in what was going on for me when I shifted from doing one 20-minute session in the morning to doing 20 minutes in the morning and then 20 minutes in the evening. Like, the, the speed with which stuff started moving got significantly faster quite quickly once I shifted to twice a day. Um, so if you've never... If you've never made time to do it, I'd really urge you to take, even just sort of set yourself three months and say, I'm just going to do this for three months and then I give myself permission to stop um, and then really try doing it 20 minutes twice a day for three months and, and see if you want to stop at the end of three months and I suspect you probably won't. In the evening, 
which quite often a certain amount of alcohol in my system. Mm. Does that make it a, a kind of effect? Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> it's tricky when you're too close to bed. Mm -hmm. It's tricky if you uh, have a little bit of any intoxicant, really, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or whatever, it makes it makes it tougher. I think um, I'll say a little bit about the about the sacred word and the kind of the moment of release in a sec. But but anything that makes makes thinking a little muddier, I think, is going to make it a little tougher. It's hard just after food. Mm -hmm. um, so it's easy to say 20 minutes twice a day, but actually finding where they're meant to fit can actually take quite a bit of quite a bit of work. Particularly, you know, if you've got an existing life that's got <laughs> things like children in it, <laughs> or a job, you know, places you've got to come come from and go to. Um, so the way I, you know, the, I said the, before, the way I normally teach it is to do a workshop and then and then like a six week follow up thing where you meet once a week. A big part of what you spend those six weeks doing, the, aside from the stuff I said already, is helping people work out how to reorganize life a little bit to find two 20 minute spots. It's, a, it's, it's tough, you know. You've got to find, I think from experience, you have to find, I call them hinge moments, right? So um, the moments where you're moving from one arc of action to a different arc of action. So you've just woken up. The one that's really easy is you've just woken up, wash your face, scratch your head, Stretch a little bit, sit down, and do some center of prayer. Right, you've just moved from sleeping to wakefulness, so that's a really good hinge moment. Um, at the end of the day, for some people that I've that I've had in centering prayer groups, um, the end of the working day, some people like finish work and then before leaving, go mm -hmm. find a quiet meeting room in the corner of wherever you are and practice in the meeting room or something. Um, that can work, or just like just as you get home before you do anything else, you know, take your shoes off, put your bag down, high, go into the other room, begin practicing. And, don't let anything interrupt you. It can be tricky to find it. Um, Jonathan, I want to come back to your question. Before I do, I just want to check the time. Yeah, good. Um, four, right? Yes. Dr. Gunning? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, I want to talk briefly about the, the release moment, the, the moment where you, you notice you're caught in a thought, you, you repeat the sacred word and you let go. Um, that's that's really critical, and it's really critical that moment for, for existing practitioners. The, that gets muddy really easily. It's easy for it to get blurry at that moment and, and to kind of let go, but not completely let go, and sort of let go, but find yourself still caught in the thought after you've let go. Um, so the point of the sacred word is to, one of the things that the sacred word does is, it, is it's intended to make that moment really crisp. So you notice that you're caught, you say the sacred word and let go as a single movement. Cynthia's advice is that if you find that movement becoming blurry or muddy or unclear or vague, um, what probably needs a little bit of work is to reaffirm your intention before you begin. That what you're setting out to do is work with the beneficial action of, let's say, epinoia in your, in your being and to get out of her way and let her do what she's trying to accomplish in you. And to get really clear on that intention before you start. Because it is really simple once you've, like you, you know, you work on that in a workshop or when you're first getting started and reading a book, but it's really easy to get a bit lax about it and to kind of just go, oh, it's center in prayer time, better do my center in prayer, bum on the cushion, go, you know, and to not think about why, you, why you're sitting about doing it. Um, ding, 20 minutes done, okay, we're off to the day. Um, so, Along those lines, there's a couple of um, 
There's a couple of little suggestions I wanted to make about, I guess, a, a container or a parenthesis for doing centering prayer that I, I think might be helpful. Um, so one is, one end of it, I think, is to just take a few moments before you start. So, Cynthia Bourgeau, who, and I, I rest on her teaching quite a lot because that's who taught me to teach, and so that's, that's whose books I've read the most of, so I, I'm kind of, I rely on her way of seeing things. She sounds a note of caution about doing too much rigmarole <laughs> at, the, at the beginning. So be really resistant about you know chanting for five minutes and ringing lots of bells and then lighting some incense and praying devotions to your patron saint and and then you know doing lots of um, salat or something and then you know doing like a like a you know prayer form not silat salat. <laughs> you can do some silat if you want. It's perfectly fine. Um, because you don't, two things. One is uh, every, every moment you spend doing something other than centering prayer is time you're taking away from your available time for doing centering prayer if it's a busy day. And the other is you don't want to get into the habit of, of cultivating this idea that you've got to set the mind to rest first and then start doing centering prayer. Because it doesn't matter how busy the mind is, the practice is still the same. You're not trying to empty your mind or make it clear or smooth. You're just working with it in whatever state that it's already in. And that's legit. Having said that... <laughs> I think there's some value in some sort of preliminary practice. So at the very least, I think it's useful when first sitting to do something physical before you start, to, to stretch and roll your shoulders and wiggle your posture a little bit and just become acquainted with this human body in which you're practicing and remember it and just connect with your breath and let it fall up and down on the body. And most of you probably already do that, but I'd really recommend just taking a couple of seconds to do that. I think that's helpful. The second thing is I think to regularly, perhaps not every time, but to regularly actually connect with your guiding intention for this practice. Why am I doing this? When I say the sacred word, what am I actually doing? That I am actually cooperating with the Holy Spirit or Sophia in the liberation of my own soul, my awakening. That's why I'm doing it. That's the purpose of this. It might be contrived to do that every time, but it's useful from time to time to reconnect with that and to remind and refresh yourself for why you've begun in the first place. Um, because over time, your understanding of that commitment will change. Like, who are you addressing this prayer to? Who is it you're connecting with? What is this thing that you're consenting to? What is the change that's happening in you and how is it moving and shifting? So it's not like doing it at the very beginning of, of practice at the start of time and then that's good forever, your understanding of all this is going to shift and change. So it's good to reconnect with it, partly to reaffirm your intention, but partly also to just acknowledge your own growing comprehension of what's, what's happening and what you're undergoing and what you're consenting to. So I think that's helpful. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of an adaptation of a, I think it's a Shambhala thing actually, but... Um, uh, that I think is, is probably helpful and that's to um, just establish a lineage connection um, which I think for us is, is probably easiest easiest phrased as connecting with the communion of saints just um, as you sit down very briefly and this doesn't have to be very fussy but to just recall the body of all the practitioners that have gone before you in the tradition and for you, that might be your actual ancestors 
or it could be favourite saints, or it could be a somewhat faceless, disembodied group of adepts that precede you, or it might be everybody else that's practising centre in prayer, or it could be some hilarious stadium, football stadium-sized bricolage of all of the above, and that's all cool, right? But who is, that, who is that communion of saints for you? And to imagine, you don't have to visualise it in any detail, but just imagine that as you sit down to pray, they're all with you. They're not just present, they're with you. They back you. They bless your practice. You're doing so well. <laughs> as you sit down to pray, you're doing so well. Um, they're proud of you for making time to practice yeah. and they bless what you're about to endeavour and rest in that and then begin that's really powerful because so often we begin practice with self-recrimination in some form and we carry that into the practice we already believe oh God, I didn't practice last night I only managed to practice once this week I'm such a failure you know, that might be fine if you're a Roman Catholic, but it's not good if you're a Gemini. <laughs> so it's, it's better in terms of, you need people on your squad, right? Someone's got to have your back, and the forebears have your back. They've always had your back. So just acknowledge that. You've got two questions now, because I've queued up your previous one. Oh, my God, she lives. I think the last one I, I, I let go. slipped from my mind. Um... The, it's, it's, so you have the, the period of prayer, but it's both a retraining and reordering the mind and practice for letting go in your day-to-day -day life. It it's is. It's not just that, that 40 minutes a day that you're, that you're letting go. What's that a, is a question. Sorry. It right. is a good question. So can I just put that in for a sec? Please. I just want to round up on the end of the prayer period. Oh, yes, please. Um... So that, sorry, just to, so just to recap on the start of the prayer period, remember your body. <laughs> remember your body. Um, your breath, <laughs> breath, bum, and um, I need another B. Breath, bum, and... Back. Back. That's oh. excellent. Oh, yeah, very good. Breath, bum, and back. <laughs> um, reconnect with your intention, and then remember your squad. Remember the spiritual forebears who are blessing your practice. That's the three things I'd say. That can be very brief. You can do all that within two breaths and you're done, right? And then begin. At the very end, um, I think it's very helpful to dedicate what you've just done to someone that needs that dedication. Um, so in Buddhist tradition, you often dedicate practice to the, to the benefit of all sentient beings. Um, you can certainly do that. Sometimes it's helpful to dedicate the practice that you just did to your aunt who's in hospital with breast cancer and is currently in her dying process, for instance, or your dog that's struggling, um, or a friend who's having a rough time this week, or a, a, a couple of friends whose relationship is fraying and might not last, or people who've just been sub subject to a tsunami somewhere that you know don't have a village to live in anymore, or something. There's something about dedicating what you just did, the, you know, the reconnecting with your intention at the beginning and dedicating what you've just done at the end somehow takes it out of that. I think it, it begins to die a little bit when you kind of take the practice and put it in a funny little terrarium in your bedroom, you know? Um, 
these two things kind of help to connect your practice back out into the world. You know, you move into the practice and then take the practice back out. There's also an app mm -hmm. for Centering Prayer, really, and it has a prayer that you can use at the beginning. You can has a series of prayers that you can choose for the beginning and the end. Your tones, and you can set how long you want it to be. Uh, contemplative out Outreach has a Centering Prayer app. Which, which is the one yeah. Drew's talking about, I think. Yeah. 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 Cool. That, that's just my notes on beginning and ending. Sorry, Jonathan, can you repeat your, you just, your last question just then? Right, so is it the, the letting go? The center there reorders the, the mind and the ego, the soul, the, the, the heart, right? Right. And then is it is it practice for letting go in your day-to-day -day life? But, or do you keep it to that 40 minutes a day? Uh, it's a good question, and it's, the answer's a little complex. Um, I think it's... When you can't walk around letting go of thought all day, yeah. you wouldn't function. It's not a particularly good way to operate in the day, I don't think. Um, I think it does, it does train you to find it easier to let go slights. Yes. You know? <laughs> so places where you get triggered or reactive, um, uh, and to consider whether it's appropriate to hang on to the thing that just happened or to let that go. Um, but... I think you've got to approach that kind of thing with a great deal of caution because depending on how your temperament is put together, if you're, if you're a very reactive type A personality, then learning how to let things go could be very healthy. Yeah. If you're more prone to a codependent type of temperament and you find yourself in very intense relationships with narcissists or you know, people with other kinds of personality disorders and you're prone to letting yourself get walked on quite a lot, I'm right here, why are you talking? <laughs> There's a few of us here, I think. Yes. Then um, that's just spiritual bypassing. Yes. Right? So, so using the practice as an excuse to not stand up for yourself and to not hold your boundaries and to not be fierce in the face of trouble um, yes. is a misuse of the practice. So I'm, I'm hesitant to give an unqualified yes, okay. I think. There is, a, there is an add-on practice called the, the, welcoming, the welcoming prayer, the welcoming practice, which is a different kind of letting go, which is probably beyond the scope of the session, but, but that's something to, to certainly look up, welcoming practice or welcoming prayer, I guess. Well, good thing. that's complicated. Absolutely. Um, more a, a comment, of course, like I have back in the room, but the, the theme of the, of the of contact this year is the Divine Feminine. If, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the sources for Centering Prayer is the Cloud of Unknowing, which holds up Mary Magdalene as sort of the ideal, the ideal contemplative, the, the person who's best at Centering Prayer. So just kind of making that connection both to the theme, yep. and also when we talk about when you're looking for a spiritual ancestor, or someone to pray with you, like as you said at the beginning, right? Perhaps for many Gnostics who treasure Mary Magdalene, she could be, there is, there is a direct connection to Centering Prayer through the Cloud of Unknowing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's two places. Um, there's actually two places in the in the Centering Prayer lineage. So it, it draws on it draws on a few predecessors. One's the Cloud of Unknowing. Um, I think I'd say Mary of Bethany, but it might have come from a time where they were conflated. Yeah. But that that image of Mary's seated at Jesus' feet and and just waiting, listening with rapt attention. Yes. Um, counterposed with Martha, kind of busying herself with, with other duties. So that's the kind of classic image of the, the active and the contemplative yeah. modes of spiritual life. Absolutely, but absolutely 
Mary. Yeah. The other place is um, uh, Father Jean-Pierre de Cossade, who's a Jesuit um, Jesuit teacher from the 18th century, I think. Um, it was a bit controversial in his day. And for him, um, the Theotokos Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the, is the kind of the, the contemplative par excellence because of her disposition to surrender. Yeah. So be it done unto me, Lord, according to thy will, or according to thy word. Yeah. Um, because ultimately what we do when we pronounce the sacred word is to surrender, to, what it, to not cling on, to try to hold whatever's going on in the mind, but to surrender it. Yeah. Um, so both those two Marys are, are helpful exemplars, I think. And then the third place is just to, that, the, that the, the divine person who's engaging in this presence and action in the, in the human being is, is itself the divine feminine. Yes. Is the living one. Wisdom, Babylon. Yeah. True. That is true. There wasn't a comment. You had a you, you, you oh, kind of you had a hand. Well, it was sort of um, and correct me, this is just I just wanted to add what his question was about um, using the example from the meditation and applying it in your daily life. There's there's effects that happen from practicing that are subconscious yeah. and that impact our daily lives in ways that we can't predict yeah. that may impact our lives like what he's describing without intention Right. and that change subconscious change without intention can be an amazing thing yeah. that we don't have to force yeah, yeah I'd agree so you don't, have to, you don't have to go practice it your practice is, is bearing some fruit I think that's a really amazing insight, and perhaps even you know a good place to have it, because that was a really good, a really excellent point. Well, I, I actually want to come back to your first question, okay. which I remember even if you don't, and that's okay. and that's why would you recommend this practice instead of anything else? Oh, right, yes, instead of anything else, yes, please. Right. So I wouldn't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't fundamentally. I promote centering prayer not because I think it's better than any other spiritual practice. Yeah. I promote centering prayer because I'm rubbish at meditation. Yeah. And um, out of any style or mode of meditational practice that I've tried, centering prayer is the only thing that's ever stuck. Yeah. It's the only style of meditation that I started doing. And then after only a few days of practice, I'd walk past where my cushion was and think, I should practice. And I'd sit down and I actually wanted to practice. Yeah. It hasn't stuck. <laughs> but at least in that first week that was an amazing gift um, so I, I talk about it a lot because for me it's really worked yeah. I, it's been a it's been a, a pivotal practice in various stages of my own the, 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 the transformation of my own life um, it's changed me it's, it's healed, reintegrated and connected things in the practice of it that I didn't even know needed doing. It's brought stuff to the surface that I didn't even know was there. It's connected me to dimensions of my being that I didn't even know existed. And it's done it all in the most humble, unassuming, quiet way um, that's been really helpful. So there are many other paths of practice that I think work for different people, and I don't think Centering Prayer works for everyone. For some people, it's a really bad match, and they find it really difficult. Um, so... Rather than promoting a single path of practice, I guess what I'd say uh, has been important for me. So I, 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 I have this sort of, um, term, I don't talk about it in public much. I talk about developing your spiritual nose, yeah. right? 
that um, there's a kind of a getting the scent of, of what needs that where you need to go next. Like what is the it's not becoming um, it's not engaging with insatiable intellectual curiosity about the next thing you need to learn. Yeah. But it's developing a more intuitive sense of okay, what's the thing that what's the next thing that takes me deeper into where I need to go, and to following that scent to where you need to go is how I used to say it. These days, I kind of prefer to think of it as listening to the whispering of Epinoia. She's always present and she's always in your ear trying to point you where you need to go. So rather than obsessing with the cyclic thinking patterns and intellectual curiosities that try to draw you onto the next fascinating thing, try to quieten yourself down and, and centering prayer might not be the thing that, that she's urging you to, to move toward, but there'll be something. So uh, ahead of trying this particular practice, I guess my, my strong urging would be to Choose something, choose, find some way to try to quieten the self and listen to what Epinoia is urging you to do and where she's urging you to go and go. Wonderful. Doesn't matter what it is, take it up, be earnest about it, throw yourself into it. Perhaps that's a good place to close. Yeah. <laughs>